WIOX is supported by you and the following underwriters. Home Goods of Margaretville, corner of Main and Bridge Streets in Margaretville, New York. Now carrying spices, flour, jams, mustards, coffee and tea, organic vegetables and fruits, and local eggs, milk, cheese, and baked goods. And, of course, cooking basics and tools of the trade for everyone at home. Home Goods of Margaretville. Open every day. 845-586-4177 or hgom.net. The Delaware County Chamber of Commerce, a catalyst for sustainable economic prosperity in the Catskills, fostering cooperation, forging partnerships, promoting tourism, providing legislative advocacy, and building strong community ties throughout the region. More information at 607-746-2281 or DelawareCounty.org. Peekamoose Restaurant on State Route 28 in Big Indian. For farm-to-table cuisine, seasonal specialty cocktails, and local craft beers, Peekamoose, dining room, tap room, lounge, and outdoor deck. Open Thursday through Monday at 5 p.m. Dinner reservations recommended 845-254-6500. 845-254-6500. Peekamoose.com. Hi, I'm Mark Beerman, host of Mark Beerman Sports here on WIOX Roxbury. I'm also a former nationally ranked tennis player and the current women and men's head tennis coach at SUNY Delhi. As director of tennis at Tennis Everyone for 15 years, I've been teaching kids, adults, and seniors from beginners to tournament-level players. Tennis Everyone, a supporter of WIOX, offers individual and group programs to players of all skill levels, as well as weekly women's, men's, and doubles clinics, and also partners players for off-site play. Information about lessons with Tennis Everyone at 845-254-4400 or mark at tenniseveryone.com. listening to WIOX Community Radio, live and local in the Catskill Mountains at 91.3 FM, MTC Cable TV Channel 20, on the campus of SUNY Delhi at 107.5 FM. 
worldwide at WIOXradio.org and on any mobile device radio FM. This is From the Forest. Every Wednesday, 6 to 7 p.m., talk about a different forest-related topic with Ryan and John. John, how's it going? Oh, things are good, Ryan. How are you? All right. What have you been up to? Uh, well, I've been paying attention to the deer lately. Is that right? I'm getting the itch. The season's getting closer. Yeah. Um, I've been watching some hunting videos. Have you? Nice. Yeah. I can't really walk around yet. I'm still nursing my foot, but um, that's getting me in the mood a little bit. Yeah, I noticed that the bucks shed their velvet, most of them. I saw one actually this morning that was still in velvet. Yeah. Most of them shed found buck rubs in the woods so far. I found a scrape that was opened up. That all points to fall. Just about out of venison. Um, pretty much. The only reason why I have one package is because I forgot to grind it up into burger. So. Oh, okay. I know. But, yeah, so we need some. Need some, you know. Went through three deer, and uh, now is the time. Yep. I've got just a little bit left. In a milk crate, maybe it's, uh, it's the bottom layer of a milk crate left, so. That'll get me through perfectly until October 1 or so, right? I guess so. Um, well, tonight we're going to be talking about first growth forest in the Catskills with forest historian Dr. Michael Kudish. Uh, Dr. Kudish received his Ph.D. at the New York State College of Environmental Science and Forestry at Syracuse. In 2000, Purple Mountain Press published the Catskill Forest, a history. As a professor emeritus in the Division of Forestry at Paul Smith College, Mike wrote four books of the vegetation of the Adirondacks, including Adirondack Upland Florida, Flora, and a number of articles on forest history of both the Catskills and Adirondacks. As a railroad historian, Mike wrote volumes on the subject of railroads in the Adirondacks and the Catskills. Mike, how's it going? Fine. Hectic. Busy. <laughs> you were last on when? Here? Yeah. I know it was 2014 when we were talking about Native Americans and forest fires. Man, that's almost 10 years ago. But I no, there was one program since. I think it was 2018. Okay. Circa. Could be. Could be. So So what have you been up to? Well, all kinds of things. Bogs. Doing a lot of studies in, in the Catskills bogs and wetlands. Trying to figure out the history of the forest going back 15,000 years. And I'm also preparing for the Tent of Knowledge, which you people will be talking about shortly. Yeah, Cauliflower Festival. Cauliflower Festival. Right, yeah, and that's, uh, what is that, a couple weeks from now, Saturday, Margaretville? Yeah, last Saturday in September. That's right. So okay. that would be September 24th. Yeah, 24th, yeah. So first growth in the Catskills. Um, a lot of this information, although I guess some of it has changed, um, is taken from the Catskill Forest a History, um, who, which you authored. And how much first growth is there? How much of the Catskills is first growth? And I guess, how would you define first growth? What does that mean? Well, sure. Which question should I answer first? Yeah, we should probably define it first. Define it. Yeah. Okay. First growth is forest that has not been commercially utilized by people, or the forest has not been cleared, or selectively logged or clear-cut. In other words, there'd be no logging, no tan bark uh, harvesting for the leather industry. There'd be no farming, no quarrying. Um, the, the only use would be recreational use and scientific study. The forests are pretty much left as they originally were. So it's original growth. It hasn't been altered by people. 
it's been altered by other things, natural disturbances and such, but not by people. So how much is left? Well, in 2000, when the book came out, Catskill Forest, I had 95 square miles. I have the numbers right here written down. But uh, a colleague of mine, Steve Parisio, uh, has been remeasuring much more carefully my work and has determined that the 95 is out of date. I remeasured it about a year or two ago and came up with 107 square miles, and he's up to 114. So he's got more than I do. But it's not one continuous tract. Right now, we have 54 of them. Some of them are huge. Some of them are many, many square miles, and some of them are just a few acres. So the range in size is tremendous, but there are 54 of them, and when you add them all up, it's about 100 and somewhere about 110 square miles, or roughly 6, 7, 8% of the Catskills. By the way, the proportion of the Adirondacks is pretty much the same. The Adirondacks, I figure, are about five times as big, and they have about five times as much first growth. So the proportion is about the same. No kidding. Where in the Catskills is most of this first growth located? Okay. You have to carry a map in your head, but here goes. All right. Um, you start from Bel Air Mountain, the south end of Bel Air Mountain, and you go over Balsam, Haines, Eagle, and Big Indian Mountain. Then you turn west over Double Top and Graham and Balsam Lake and Millbrook Ridge. And there's also uh, a big area south of Millbrook Ridge on the uh, known as the Beaverkill Range on the south side of the Beaverkill. So it's primarily the first growth is in the southwestern quarter of the Catskills. Uh, there is a bit of first growth in the northeast corner. Uh, there's a bit up in the area, say, from Indian Head to Hunter Mountain over to West Hill, but that's not as extensive as the area of the southwest. The southwest end has most of it. So the majority would be what? The Slide Mountain Wilderness Area? Big, Slide Mountain Wilderness Area, Big Indian Big Wilderness Indian. Area. And Beaver uh, Kill. Balsam Lake, Wild Forest, Beaver Kill Range. Um, what, what what other wild forest is out there? It's sundown, but... No, that's farther yeah. east. So okay. most of it's in the southwestern part, which, which is really, when you think about it, most distant from where most of the people used to be and still are. You have a human population uh, minimum in the southwestern Catskills, and that's where most of the first growth uh, would be. I don't know if you know the qu answer to this, but how do you think the Catskills stack up against other mountain ranges like the Berkshires, the Whites, the Greens, as far as first growth goes? Do you, much would, more. Same thing more. like the Adirondacks, much more. Yeah. We have much more here than, than in, in uh, New England in proportion. Why do For, you think? I mean, I have my own think, ideas, but... I have my ideas. I think one reason is you're more or less isolated from heavy population, human population areas. New England is, was very early settled. There was more time for yeah. people to do things in the woods. And also you're closer to a lot of large cities and large population centers. Um, the eastern Catskills, of course, in the Hudson Valley, uh, don't, doesn't have too much first growth because you're so close by the Hudson Valley, which was settled very, very early. But I think most of the first growth in the Catskills is in the western and the southwestern part, where the population is still quite light today. 
something to think about too is um, when I worked briefly for the Green Mountain National Forest, um, the Connecticut River, I guess, goes through there, right? The, the upper Connecticut River. And my former boss really clued me in on, because he's big into trout. And he would say, you know, you look at that Connecticut River. And I'm like, yeah. And he's like, you know, so there's like no boulders in it? And I'm like, yeah, I guess you're right. He's like, they took it out for logging and stuff, and they're floating logs. Whereas in the Catskills, and I don't know about the Adirondacks, but the Catskills, our streams are so small, they're not big enough to do that. So they were never used for transporting logs except for the Del- big Delaware on the you know going to New Jersey. So it was limited. The East they, they couldn't really log the Catskills like they did in the whites and the greens in that they didn't have a big river to really float logs down. You know, the Esopus is just not big enough. The beaver kill is just not big the enough. It's East, just a hair too small. Yeah. The yeah. East Branch Delaware had a big log floating industry upstream about as far as John Burroughs writes about this. Uh, Maybe East Branch? I don't know. Yeah, the, the East Branch did mostly below Downsville. Right. And of course, the West Branch. That would make sense. But you're but, right. Man. The streams were too uh, too small here. Yeah. And it and it was you know that's why it became a big fly fishing because all that structure, meaning rocks, was still in the streams. Yes. Whereas other areas, they took all that structure out. And he was he was right. As soon as he pointed it out, I was like, yeah, you know that Connecticut River is like bare. <laughs> you know, you don't you take it for granted in the Catskills. You look at a stream and all the rocks are there. You know what I mean? But you look at these other ones and the structure's been ripped out. In the 1800s. There was a lot of log floating more in the Adirondacks than here. Yeah. Yeah, I don't, I, I don't, I'm pretty ignorant when it comes Especially to the Especially on the, on the I, but I'd have to get through all my notes on that. Yeah. So, Mike, where's all this first growth at? Is it elevation-based? The higher you get, the more you find? Generally, yes. The higher you get, the more you find. The average elevation at which it begins, this is the average for the whole Catskills, is about 2,800 feet. But it varies markedly from mountain to mountain and slope to slope. A lot of it depends on the topography, uh, the steepness, the roughness. A lot of it depends on the land ownership, where the, where the boundaries are, who owns what, where, and, and when, and changes the land ownership. Um, what about, Mike, um, you know, you said first growth would, would – only would not include artificial or human human caused disturbances. But how does fire um, go into that? Well, I look at it this way: if we know that the fire was caused by people, yeah, then it's not first growth. If we know the fire was caused by lightning, then it is first growth. And of course, the problem is, how do you tell the difference? Well, if you have written records that go back a hundred, a hundred fifty years, that makes it easy. But what happens prior to that? Uh, I'm in the process now of having an article that I just wrote for Catskill Tri-County Historical Views. That's a a new publication that's on Green and Delaware and Scarry counties. It's called Catskill Tri-County Historical Views. And I just submitted an article, which is being edited. It should be out this fall, about charcoal in the bogs. Charcoal telling us about the history of forest fires. And I can guess at whether a forest fire was caused by people, Native Americans mostly, or by lightning, by where it is and when it was. So there's, to a certain extent, you can figure out 
whether the, the forest fire was caused by people or not. If it's a high elevation in the interior where Native American people were not active and it's five, seven, eight, ten thousand years ago, it's probably lightning. If it's along the escarpment, especially in the eastern Catskills, and it's starting around seven, six, five thousand years ago, it's probably Native Americans. Man, I don't know. I mean, I know Mohawk Mountain House did a study on that, and out of 99 fires, they thought maybe one ever was lightning, yeah, and they weren't yeah, even yeah. sure about it. Yeah. I still I don't buy the lightning. I really don't. The lightning, the problem is we get rain. You know, whenever we have lightning, we get tremendous amount There's of rain. There's a common thought among historians that 95% of the forest fires are caused by people directly or directly. Yeah. So your 99% is not that far off. Very yeah. few of them are, are started by lightning. Yeah. But there are some. Right, right. Yeah, that's true. But how big would they get, though? I mean, They don't get big. That's it. They one. don't get big because they get drenched out by all the, the heavy rain. A, a fraction of an acre, an acre. Lightning has uh, struck some of these fire towers and started little fires on tops of some of our mountains, but just a very small acreage. So lightning is a very, very minor component. Hmm. Interesting. But when you, when, you find a, when you find charcoal on top of Balsam Lake Mountain in the bog, preserved, 9,500 years old, it seems a little unlikely it's Native Americans. Who knows? Every time I read more, they just keep bumping back the influence. Older and older and older, and more and more expansive. And I just more don't... and more into the interior. Into... Yeah. Well, it's possible. You know, even the Rocky Mountains, I was reading one ecologist, and he was like, I don't think there's anywhere that these people didn't burn, and that's way more extreme of an environment. You know what I mean? The Catskills is not that extreme. But I agree that it's well over 90% is human-caused. Yeah. yeah. Huh. Directly or indirectly. So you were going to say, John? Oh, I was just... I mean, curious. I was curious about that Balsam Lake fire 9,500 years ago. <laughs> what happened? Do you, do you have any idea? Will it, uh, did it burn the whole cap off of balsams or what? All I know is there's charcoal in the peat. Mm -hmm. Interesting. But that's not the only peak. I have a, a few of them selected from this article I'm writing on uh, bog charcoal. There's one on top of Dibble Mountain. What was it, 6,000 years ago? Dibble is a, is a north spar of Sugarloaf Mountain over in the town of Hunter. And this one up there. It's possible it could be people, a campfire that went out of control. I mean, it's possible. Yeah. We're just purposely burning. Got to eat. You know? John, you know how... You know, they, you know that show alone that they do? Yeah, I've seen On it. Netflix? I've seen if it. They could just do that on Balsam Lake. Try to go eat. Go ahead. Go hunt for your food. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's but, just nothing but, to eat unless you these, burn. These spot fires higher up and yeah. so many thousands of years ago does not relate to the Native Americans burning forests over large areas to get what some people call a bast forest. That is a forest of, of nut trees, oaks, hickories, chestnuts. Well, I don't, I don't think it's just for mast. No. No, there were other reasons they burned. Yeah. Sure. Deer. It's all about sure. deer. Sure. And, and and there are even more reasons. Sure. Yeah. A lot of reasons. Sure. And I'm sure just like any other human beings, they have their adolescents who are just want to go burn. Because <laughs> you can. I think there's rogue, rogue teenagers in the absolutely. Native American community. Absolutely. That were just burning stuff down. If you can burn it, you will burn it. Yeah. No, I 
was very yeah. fire savvy by our teenage years. God, we bur- I almost burned down our whole woods growing up in New Paltz. You know, almost came really close. Our form, our, our former boss started a forest fire in the Albany Pine Barren. Jim Waters, there, I'm outing him now. <laughs> it's, this has been so long ago, the statute of limitations is over. But this is like in the oh. 70s. <laughs> yeah, I used to go there. Yeah, sure. But um, so my, if you're just tuning in, uh, you're listening to From the Forest. Tonight's topic is first growth forest in the Catskills with forest historian Dr. Michael Kudish. Uh, Mike, how would you differentiate first growth from old growth? First growth and old growth are, can be mutually exclusive. Or they can be overlapped. In other words, you can have a first-growth forest that is old growth. You can have a first-growth forest that is not old growth. Yeah. You can have an old-growth forest that is not first-growth. And you can have a forest that's neither old nor first. First means that human beings have not been in there making changes. Old growth simply means that some of the trees are old. And most of the first growth in the Catskills is old growth, but not all of it. I can give you exception. I can give you examples of first growth that's not old. Sure, that's where I was. My mind just went was first growth okay. is new growth. A lot of the the balsam fir forests on tops of the mountains, like Balsam Lake Mountain, Double Top Mountain, Eagle Mountain, Slide Mountain, where you have a fir forest with basically no spruce. Balsam fir is a short-lived tree. It's old at about the time when people get old. So a 100-year-old balsam fir is old just like a 100-year-old person is old. So balsam fir just doesn't get old. So you can't really have an old-growth balsam fir forest because none of them are are the age of of being old. And, (coughs) excuse me, uh, the, there is a general consensus among ecologists and forest historians that old growth begins at about 150 years. And I've come up with that idea and, and agree with it independently. And I'm glad that a number of people do. So old growth forests would be including trees at over 150 years old. And that would mean that the species in those forests would have to be species that can get to be 150 years old and older. And we have those here in the Catskills but not balsam fir. Right. So in order to perpetuate balsam fir on those tops, since they don't live so long, what needs to occur then? Primarily wind. Yeah. A blowdown. In the Adirondacks, they have fir waves. John's familiar with the fir waves on Whiteface Mountain. Uh, the fir waves, uh, one study years back figured out about every 80 or 90 years, the balsam fir forest is blown down and starts up again and regenerates. And the wave actually, if you stood in one spot and watched, it actually moves up the slope uh, as trees die out and new ones replace them. But in the Catskills, the fir forests are not really extensive enough to have well-developed fir waves. I've seen them on top of Slide, small ones, and on top of Table Mountain. Yeah, Slide, there was a big uh, microburst or whatever. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Pretty cool So we have them here in the Catskills, but not very large. Another example of first growth but not old growth is if you climb a mountain and you're up, say, 3,000 feet or higher and you're at a top of a high ledge where there's a lookout and there's a crowd of people having their lunch and enjoying the view, 
the trees around that lookout, because the bedrock is at the surface or so close to the surface, those trees are going to be stunted. So, and they never get very old. I'm just thinking of certain places. I was just past one up on Sugarloaf Mountain a few weeks ago. I'm thinking of trees that are almost continuously pioneering up there. They never get too big. They never get too old. Paper birch, um, red or fire cherry, serviceberry, a whole array of shrubs. Uh, they just, mountain ash is another one. They just don't get very big or very old because they're in such an exposed, windswept place. And the soils are so shallow that the forest never can get old. It's still first growth, but it's scrub. And there are places where the first growth is even less than a forest. It's just shrubs. I call them shrub thickets. And there's some well-developed ones. I've been mapping them. There's some really good ones up on Blackhead Mountain. One place where that's kind of interesting um, is the Shangam Ridge because it you couldn't really call it first growth by that de- by your definition because it's probably all been burned by humans. So right there, that's difficult. But then the pitch pine, which thrive and, and they outcompete other trees and shrubs and fires, some of those pitch pines, they're dwarfed. Right. They're not more than 10 feet tall. Right. And they're from the 1800s. They're old. Yeah. Some of them have been cored, and they'll be as tall as you, John, and from 1865. Now, where are these? On the Schwank Ridge uh, above Allenville. I was in the Shine Gums a number of years back with a few friends, and they brought me to see a spruce hemlock yellow birch swamp. It yeah. was near Lake Owasting. Yeah, it's probably the yeah, spruce, red spruce swamp, but um, yeah. Well, I'd never been there before. I was very impressed with it, and I said to my friends, I said, I wonder if because it's wet, Maybe it didn't burn as much. I think as, so. As most of the shine gums. And what you're looking at is what the shine gums looked like seven, eight, nine, ten thousand years ago before the heavy burning started. This is a remnant forest. It's protected from the fire, yeah. Because it's wet. Yeah, it's sphagnum moss in there. Yes. And there's uh, really old black gums. Yes, I've seen those too. Really old ones, or some people might call them pepperidge. Say the species composition again. It's also known as tupelo. Yeah, black tupelo. Pepperidge, black gum, sour gum. There's a whole bunch of names. There's red spruce, black gum, uh, yellow birch growing in these uh, swampy protected areas amongst what is primarily a forest of zerophytes or fire fire tolerant species like pitch pine, chestnut oak. To me, it's almost comical having black gum and red spruce together in the same place. But, Mike, you know, I was in that area not too long ago, maybe five-plus years ago, and because there hasn't been fire in so long, red spruce is jumping out of that swamp and on the ridge. I'm not surprised. Which is really, really weird to see I'm growing next to a pitch pine. Yes. You know, two two trees that I would say don't belong with they each other. They don't belong to each other. One is northern and one is southern. Yeah, yeah. But, um, yeah, so let, what, let's let's talk about the importance of first growth, Mike. What, what's, the, what's the big deal? Well, I can tell you my personal feelings why it's important and why we should have some of it. And the reason is pretty, is, is pretty much scientific because if we study first growth forests and see how nature works on its own, we can understand it better. And if we can understand first growth better, 
then we can understand forests that we need for commercial purposes or not first growth better. So I think it helps us understanding. It's almost like a, it's almost like an outdoor control. If you have a laboratory experiment, you have a control in the laboratory experiment where you don't do anything just to see what happens. And then you do different treatments to see what happens when you do different treatments. Well, first growth is like a biological control outdoors rather than a laboratory. And you can study it and try to understand what's going on. They're very complex ecosystems, these forests. But if you have a better insight as to what's going on without human activities, then maybe we can understand better what's going to happen when we have a forest with human activities. So my interest is primarily scientific. Yeah. Uh, there are other people who feel that first growth uh, is important for other reasons. To me, they're of lesser importance, but that's just my own opinions. There are people who go into them for inspiration, almost sometimes for uh, artistic stimulation, painters, writers, musicians, uh, philosophers, people who go in for, uh, for ideas, for creativity, and uh, also people, almost for religious reasons, some people. But that, that, with me, it's primarily the science of biological control. So we need some of it. Uh, what do you think? I mean, this control has been going on since 1904, give or take 20 years. Uh, in your opinion, what do you th- how do you think the control is doing? You mean the forest preserve? Yeah, well, that could be. I mean, first growth is mostly in the forest preserve, but just as a control, you know, in your research over the last 30, 40, 50 years, uh, compared to maybe more managed landscapes, I guess. I don't know. What do you think? Do you think it's healthy, or what's the deal? Well, you mean forest health in the first growth? Yeah. Well, many of the newly imported diseases and defoliators don't distinguish between first growth and second and third growth. Yeah. So if it's beech bark disease, or hemlock woolly adelgate, or emerald ash borer, or any other problems we have in, in recent years, they don't distinguish between the first and second growth, so they will affect the first growth if they can. Still finding them, yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. And, in fact, some of my friends have been thinking, uh, some of my colleagues, that maybe we should reclassify first growth forests which have these diseases and defoliators and separate them as a class from those that do not. Mm, wow. You uh, wouldn't beca- have much. Because of the the fact that the the pests, the problems, are primarily introduced by people directly, indirectly. Now, people are not going deliberately to bring these fungi and insects up there, but they're escaping up there anyway. And if it weren't for people, they wouldn't be here in the first place. So, yeah, you're right. Uh, there's not that much first growth that has not been affected by uh, hemlock ash and, and um, beech diseases. There's always something new. And there seems to be a big explosion about the 1980s. That seemed to be a big turning point, not only in tree diseases and tree defoliators, but even in human diseases. We started picking up diseases uh, in the 1980s that we just didn't have before. I'm thinking about two that I already had myself 
giardiasis and, and Lyme disease. All right. And they came in pretty much in the 1980s, that, mm. that, about that time. So it's not just trees, it's people Yeah. getting illnesses. I don't know if it's because of trade being increased since the 1980s. I don't really know. I don't know either, yeah. but that was the decade. Makes sense. Um, that's when hemlock started to be really discussed in, in the Shuangak Ridge, like the Poma got and stuff, where you know the, the hemlocks were being infected by Willie Adelgin. I remember people writing about that. Did you want an example of old growth that's not first growth? Yeah. Because that happens too. So what are examples of those? Cause, yeah, go ahead. Well, sometimes you can have them right around old farmsteads. You can go to a, a, a well-established family farm that's 200 years old or older or 150 years old or older, and you can have trees that were planted or naturally grow, grew, and those trees are 175 to 200 years old, and they're right around the farmhouses or along the roadsides. And that's old growth. Yeah. But it's not first growth. I'm thinking of a hemlock stand by St. James Church. It's between Andes and Delhi. It's in Bovina. Uh, there's some hemlocks up around there, some real old ones, and you walk through it and you find stumps. Some of them have been cut out. So there is human activity in there, and there's still old growth, but it's not first growth. Another example, uh, John would be very familiar with, is the Paul collar sugar bush. Yep. Because very. when I was studying those and, and trying to figure out how old those sugar maples were, and this was 30, 40 years ago and more, some of them were getting close to 200. Wow, really? They were about, what, 180? Well, now they're over 200. Wow. But they were about 170, 180 then. I have all my data. Holy cow. And they're old-growth sugar maples, but it's not a first-growth forest because a lot of the other competing species were eliminated from the sugar bush uh, so that the competition would be uh, less. The sugar maples would grow better. So they pulled out the conifers. They pulled out the yellow birch. They cut out the beech, any hop hornbeam. So the sugar maples would have free reign of the place and produce, be healthier and produce more sap. Higher sugar content, right, John? Those are sweet trees, like yeah, literally. We hit the whole, the uh, so holy that would be that's of, that's of a very fine example. That, that's a classic example. When I was at Paul Smith's, I got one. Um, there's one in Kerhonks, and I'm not gonna say where it is because it's on private land. But it's so small, Mike. You would never know it's there. Behind this guy's house is literally an acre, maybe, maybe less. And this area was completely cleared. It's just above Kerhonkson in some really good farmland. In fact, some of, most of the road today is still farmed. And it's just a little acre size of the biggest hemlock and white and red oak, especially the red oak, are so impressive. And because it's a good site, they're tall. They're so tall, they're over 100 feet tall. Oh, good. Uh -huh. And their diameters are well over 40 inches. And they have the sight to do it. And and I climbed one of them, and I, my line is 75 feet, and I could not reach the top without, you know, I had to reascend once I was in the tree. But, yeah, the farmer, whoever did that, just left them for some odd reason in that field. And there they are. That would be old growth. So, conclusion, you could have first growth. That's old growth. Most of that, most of the first growth is old growth from the Catskills. But you can have first growth that's not old growth. You can have old growth that's not first growth. You can have forests that are neither first growth or old growth. 
Mm. I, I just think of a farm that was abandoned 60 years ago, and it's coming up with red maple and ash. Yeah. Well, uh, when we return, um, we'll talk to Dr. Kudish more about uh, how to identify first growth and uh, some misconceptions about first growth as well. the sun long before the white man and long before the wheel when the green dark forest was too silent to be real but time has no beginnings and the history has no bounds as to this verdant country they came from all around they sealed upon her waterways and they walked the forest tall Built the mines, the mills, and the factories for the good of a soul And when the young man's fancy had turned into the spring The railroad men grew restless for to hear the hammers ring their minds were overflowing with the visions of their day With many a fortune won and lost and many a debt to pay For they looked in the future and wanted to see this on iron road Running from the sea to the sea Bringing the goods to the young growing land All up from the sea Upon the railway, 
swinging our hammers in the bright blazing sun. Living on stew and drinking bad whiskey. Mending our backs till the long days are done. We are the navvies who work upon the railway, swinging our hammers in the bright blazing sun, laying down track. Canadian Railroad Trilogy by uh, Gordon Lightfoot. Hey, John, you better get your stove going. Uh, I'm looking at the weather. Delaware County is going to see 39 tomorrow in Roxbury. Oh, all right. Oh. I'm ready. 39. Yeah, the next day in the 40s, and then it should be more seasonable after that. But, yeah, you might have to get the wood stove going. That'd be all right with me. A little (laughs) test fire. I don't think at 900 feet where I'm at I'll I'll be doing that just yet. But, uh. I'm looking forward to seeing the smoke again and uh, smelling some burning wood, you know? I uh, I don't know, that wet rainy day two, three weeks ago, or whatever, rained for a day and a half straight. Yeah. Drove by uh, a farmhouse. He had a, a 
farmhouse had a had a wood fire going. The garage shop had a wood fire going. And <laughs> something going on in the barn had a wood stove coming out of that, too. And there was wood smoke coming out of all three of them. All right. I don't know if he was just waiting for that day to test everything or he actually was cold. But <laughs> <laughs> it really was humorous to me. I know. it. I'll probably cut my grass one more time here. But anyway, uh, tonight's topic is first growth forest in the Catskills with forest historian Dr. Michael Kudish. One of the coolest things I read in your book, um, which is the Catskill Forest of History, is how to identify first growth, Mike. Which you know, um, it, it's really educated me quite a bit while I'm walking around, especially state land where a lot of this occurs. There are several things that one might want to know before you, one can identify it. Um, first is the species themselves, because in first growth forests. There's a lack of certain species. For example, you would not find a lot of the burn species, like oaks and hickories and American chestnut and mountain laurel and black birch. Uh, and you would, uh, you probably would not find aspens. There are certain species that would tend to go in the first growth. Uh, there would be some pioneers. For example, uh, that is young trees that come up following disturbances, but they'll follow natural disturbances high up. So you can get trees like paper birch and mountain ash and red cherry higher up, and uh, they'd still be in the first growth. So uh, knowing the species of trees and plants. Another is getting a good idea of what has happened in the valleys below and, and on the ridges by people. That is some sort of a fundamental knowledge of the industries, where the farms were, how far up the slopes did the pastures go. Uh, crops are primarily at the lower elevations on, on valley bottoms and floodplains, but the pastures went pretty high up. You also have quarries, knowing where the bluestone quarries were, the bluestone industry, and the different forest products industry. Um, in the northeastern Catskills, there was a lot of harvest, harvesting of spruce. There were lumber companies in the Catskills, much like there were in the Adirondacks, but the lumber companies are primarily restricted to the northeastern part where there was a lot of spruce. You also have the acid wood industry, which could take the trees, hardwood trees, down to relatively small size to make for different distillation products. And then, of course, the tanning industry the hemlock, the bark peelers. So knowing where the bark roads went to get the hemlock out of the woods to make uh, to tan the leather. So knowing where the tanneries were and where their log roads went. Also knowing where the mills went and where their roads went and the quarries and their roads. And also another important thing is property boundaries. Where was the boundary between, first, uh, between state land, that is forest preserve, and private land, where was the cutoff? And that bo those boundaries change. There are certain tracts that, if you go into them today, they're forest preserve, and yet you don't find too many old trees and you find stumps and roads because the transfer from s private land to state land has been pretty recent. So a knowledge of land ownership, where the boundaries are and where the boundaries were, and who owned what when, is very important, as well as knowing the industries that were going on in the valleys, as well as knowing something about what's going on up on the ridges in the forest. So all these things uh, help 
You just don't wander into a forest and proclaim it for its growth. There are a lot of factors, and sometimes it's not easy. And very often I will go back into an area and remap and move my entry points around. That is the point where you go from second or third growth to first. So I'm constantly amending and changing and trying to make improvements and fine-tuning. What's your process for aging stumps? Oh, that's fun. Yeah. We did a we did a CFA festival, Forest Festival, a Tent of Knowledge lecture on that, what, four or five years ago? It was called, what, what did we call it? Stumped by Stumps. Stumped by Stumps. Yeah, that was fun. Uh, and I, I remember I was uh, impressing the group of people by saying that you, you bring a, a, a comfortable chair and something to read and some food and a beverage, and you sit there and you watch the stump rot and see how, how long it takes for the thing to rot. Um, <clears throat> yes, I used to teach that in my forest history course at Paul Smith's College. We used to go out in the woods and look at stumps, and I'd ask the student, how old do you think the stump is? Not how old the tree was when the stump was cut. That's a different thing. But how, how long ago was the stump cut? And you can tell to a certain extent by uh, how much moss is growing on it. You can tell by if the bark is coming off. You can also tell by the top of the stump. If it's flat, it's probably more recent because when they really get old, Sometimes the, the central part is rotted out and you get a line of spikes. It almost looks like a fortress uh, around a circle, around the perimeter of the stump. Uh, most stumps will rot within about a half a century. So a lot of the areas that were logged when I was a grad student are now the stumps are slowly disappearing. You can still see them, stumps that are 50 years old. But... Hemlock, no, not hemlock. Yellow birch is an exception. Yellow birch stumps seem to take almost forever to rot. There, there are places that I know were logged for yellow birch a hundred years ago and more, and the stumps are still there. Up on Hunter Mountain, the Fenwick Lumber Company logged spruce and yellow birch primarily. And the spruce stumps are all gone. Yellow birch stumps, many of them are still there. It's over a hundred years. Now, what's the cause of that, do you think? There's something about the chemistry of yellow birch stumps. I don't know what it is. I know there's some tannin in yellow birch bark, but um, you know there's tannin in most most trees. But it, it must have a little more tannin. Yellow birch bark is a story unto itself. But I'm looking at hmm. fossil fossil plants and wood and bark in in the peat coming out of the bogs. That yellow birch bark can rot much more slowly than the wood. So you have almost an empty cylinder of yellow birch bark, and inside it is practically nothing. The woods will rot it out, and the yellow birch bark is still there. And it's five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten thousand years old. So yellow birch is strange, not yes. only with the stump rotting rate, but with the bark rotting rate in a bog, in a peat. Mike, um, can you tell the difference between a logging road and a bark road? Oh, yeah. That's a, easy. And a quarry road? How would you do that? <sighs> A logging road and a quarry road would be difficult. Yeah. Uh, very often, a quarry road is used later as a logging road, or sometimes vice versa. But when you have a quarry road or a logging road, usually it means there were wagons involved. And wagons very often meant 
you need two horses or two oxen side by side. So it would be eight feet wide. Uh, nowadays, how wide are highway vehicles? How wide are skidders now? Also about eight feet? Pretty wide. Some can be Pretty much, wide. They can be wider, wider than more that. More wide, I would The new think. big ones are wider than that. The wider than that. Yeah. Okay. But highway vehicles and traditionally wagons were about eight feet wide. And the reason has to do with you have two horses or two oxen pulling side by side. So logging roads and quarry roads generally are eight feet wide. And most often very well built. Very well built. Uh, if it's a steep slope, you can see the cuts and fells. They filled on one side and cut on the other. So the road is more manageable. But bark roads are very different. Bark roads were only four feet wide for the most part, except for a main hall road. But most of the bark roads, especially the end ones, were about four feet wide. And the reason is that the bark was hauled out in the wintertime over deep snow by one horse or one ox. So it only had to be four feet wide. And because the bark was hauled out in the wintertime over snow, all but the biggest boulders were under the snow, if we had more snowy winters in the 19th century, and a lot of the, the, the rocks did not have to be moved. So the bark roads are not only steeper, they're very rough and they're very narrow, and you can have good-sized rocks and cobbles on them that would have been covered by snow, whereas if it were a quarry or a logging road, those rocks would have had to have been pushed aside to get the wagons through. So bark roads are very rough and they're very narrow, and usually they're easy to spot. They're probably the oldest too, right? I mean, it's the first industry in, in uh, some instances. In most cases, yes, yeah. because the bark roads are going back to 1810, 1820, 1830, 40, 50. Most of the barking was done by the end of the Civil War, uh, yeah. and the the uh, there was logging going on too, but the logging culminated in the latter half of the 19th century and into the early 20th. So the bark roads are a lot older, but they're also narrower and steeper and much rougher. We only got about two and a half minutes left, Mike. Um, you know, you don't have to say exactly where or anything. It's up to you. But um, what, what are some noteworthy first-growth forests that come to mind? Okay, I can mention a few of those, but did you want to mention what's happening on the 28th of September? Sure. The, the festival? It's the 24th of September. Wait a minute. Uh, I think it's the 24th. I have my calendar. Yeah, you may want to mention that. Well, sure. Uh, quickly, uh, quickly, Dr. Michael Kodish here. He's been speaking tonight on from the forest. Uh, he's going to be talking about sawmills, piano bars, log roads, sugar maple, distribution, and first growth forest. If you want to see him live at the Cauliflower Festival in Catskill Forest Association's Ten of Knowledge. He begins his talk at 12.30 and ends around 1.30 p.m. Following him is Brian Ellis talking about forest carbon, the impacts of climate change on New York forests, 1.30 to 2.30. And last in Catskill Forest Association's Ten of Knowledge at the Cauliflower Festival is Lindsay Baxter, 2.30 to 3.30 p.m., talking about Lyme and other tick-borne diseases in the Northeast. So wanted to throw that out there. If you're going to be in the Margaretville area on September 24th at the Cauliflower Festival, stop by the Ten of Knowledge. You asked about some exceptional first growth areas. There are some exceptional first growth areas because they're at lower elevations in valleys, which are, for the most part, but not completely, quite remote and just 
very often by chance, had not been blocked or logged or quarried. Sometimes the, uh, they went into the forest reserve at an early time before any of the companies could get to them. Um, I'm thinking of certain places where I bring people to show them first growth if they don't want to climb to the top of a mountain. And here is where you find the large old trees, uh, the, the big old trees. Uh, there's one grove off the Millbrook, uh, off Millbrook Ridge on the north side. There's another area in a Black Brook, which is a tributary to the Beaverkill. Uh, there are other places I've been bringing people in. There's an area, uh, it's somewhat high up, but not very high up, on Dibble Mountain, which is the north spur of Sugarloaf. There's an extensive first growth area that we might be bringing the Catskill Environmental Research and Monitoring Conference in on uh, October 28th. We may be, be bringing our people in there on an old-growth field trip, and that is in the Biscuit Brook Valley, not too far from Frost Valley. You go up the, it's the Pine Hill West Branch Trail, up from the County Route 47 near Biscuit Brook, and go north toward Big Indian Mountain. And some of the first growth comes down quite low. It's a pretty remote area in there. Well, unfortunately, Mike, we are out of time. And if you, you missed tonight's show, it was um, First Growth Forest with forest historian Dr. Michael Kudish. And up next is uh, Hoppy Quick. Should be a good one. And, Mike, thanks for coming on tonight. Well, thank you. Thank you, Mike. From the forest His tears fell on the sidewalk As he stumbled in the street A dozen faces stopped to stare But no one stopped to speak for his castle was a hallway and the bottle was his friend And the old man stumbled in from the forest Up a dark and dingy staircase the old man made his way His ragged coat around him as upon his cot he lay And he wondered how it happened that he didn't up this way Getting lost like a fool In the forest And as he lay there sleeping A vision did appear Upon his mantle shining The face of one so dear Who'd loved him in the springtime Of a long forgotten year Flowers did bloom in the forest. She touched his grizzled fingers and she called him by his name. And then he heard the joyful sound of children at their games in an old house on a hillside in some forgotten town where the river runs down. Never sleeps And to an old forgotten 